It's good to be back. Uh, thanks for having me back. We'll turn, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. We know this verse well. Uh, my goal is to get through the last four feelings and then kind of do um, some Q&A at the end. Um, so I'm going to try my hardest and my best to get through these last four and give us some time to uh, do some dialogue around it. But it says this. We know this verse well. 17 verse 9 of Jeremiah says this. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and it's desperately sick. Sick, who can understand it? Uh, notice at the end of that verse, it's a question mark, not a period. So who can understand the heart, though it's dece- deceitfully wicked above all things? Verse 10 says this, the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind. The Lord knows our heart. And we believe this to be true about the gospel. The gospel redeems a desperately wicked heart, does it not? I hope it does, or we're all in big trouble. So the Lord, through the gospel, redeems our wickedness, our hearts. And so we always hear about the heart being wicked, the heart being wicked, the heart being wicked, the heart being wicked, right? We we hear that over and over and over again. Well, that is a true statement, but we must infuse it with the gospel. The gospel says, yes, it's wicked, but the gospel transforms the heart. And so then I would like us to turn to Proverbs chapter 4. And I beg the question this morning, why does the writer of Proverbs say to us this verse, if the verse is true in Jeremiah 17, verse 9? What does he say? The writer of Proverbs says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. So if we have a heart that's been redeemed by God through the gospel, now he tells us to protect our heart. Because out of that heart is what's going to bring us life and life to the full. Do we believe that this morning? Or do we just simply believe the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things? Or do we believe the gospel is true that it redeems the heart and now therefore we must keep our heart with all vigilance? And so I would beg you to do this with our hearts, is to be honest with them. You know, last time we were together we talked about the feelings are three things. They're the passwords, they're the lanterns, and they're the keys to our lives. They, they open us up. They infuse us to get us to deep, deep places that God wants to redeem. And so he's given us a heart. He's given us emotions, feelings. Feelings are not good nor bad. They're just feelings. They're how we were created by God. God himself had feelings. If you don't believe that, read Exodus. And read, just start in Genesis, where he's angry and kills off everybody except one man. He said, I wish I had never done this. Like, and then he looks and with compassion, with love. And he redeems us through Christ. God himself, the creator, sustainer of all things, had emotions. Jesus himself, we see that in John eleven thirty five, 35, had a heart for his best friend, even though he knew it was about to happen moments after he starts weeping over Lazarus. He's sad. Remember, he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps for the city. He has compassion. Remember, he walks into the temple and he has anger and he flips over tables. Like Jesus is a man deeply connected to what? His heart. And now he calls us to be men and women who are deeply connected to our heart. I believe it comes through these eight simple words. Again, I said this last time. I'll say it again. These are not the only feelings we have. But I believe they're the core feelings to all of us. Uh, if I asked Tim to come up, who's an amazing musician, he would tell me, there's how many, only how many musical notes, Tim? 
right? There's only, and everything out of those notes comes a beautiful symphony, but it's how you put all those together. Just the same is true in art, if you're an artist. There's only what? How many primary colors? Three. And out of those primary colors comes everything else, and that would be true for our heart with our emotions. And so I'd like to submit to you this morning eight core emotions. We went through the first four. We'll go through the last four today. We're, we're on fear. And so fear is not good nor bad. It's what we do with our fear. Fear is this. Fear says this to us. It allows us to know when we're in danger. Fear is the emotion that God gives us that lets us know that something dangerous is about to happen to us. Thank God for fear. And yet we live in a church culture that says, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. The church tells us, don't have fear. That's crazy. But God gave us fear so that we know when danger comes. And here's what I would like to offer us this morning. Let us not rate fear. Let us rate danger. Danger is danger. My child at four years old, Cedar, he doesn't have a danger rating. Like he doesn't like everything to him. If it's dark in the room, he's terrified. Like he, his meter doesn't go off. Well, this is more dangerous or less dangerous. And we grow up in a world that says, hey, let's start rating danger. And for men in particular, men are to, to rate danger. And man, we are pansies if things are to the world not dangerous and we feel dangerous. So then we become careless, fearless people. There is danger in this world, is there not? So let us not rate danger. Chip Dodd says this about fear. Fearless people are careless people. Anyone in the room want to go to a doctor that's not fearful? Do you want to go to a doctor that's fearless? See, if fearless people are careless people, fearless people put no value on life. Like, Evil Knievel was a fearless person. That dude was dangerous. Like, I'm not jumping over a canyon on a dirt bike. You've got to be somewhat halfway crazy to do that. He was fearless. And we're like, man, I want to be fearless. I, I want to be like that. And we grow little boys up to be like that. And they become dangerous men that don't know how to protect anybody because they don't know how to protect themselves. They don't know how to protect themselves. How are they going to protect little girls? Because they're fearless. And we as dads instill that in them because someone instilled that in us. And so I'd like to say this to us. Let's be men and women who are fearful. Fear does one thing. Fear gives us the value of life. Fear also does this. Fear allows us to what? Cry out in need. That's why Cedar, what does he do when he's scared of the dark? He cries out. Because he knows, Daddy, if he cries out loud enough, Daddy's going to come in and rescue him. But if you were like me as a boy, when I cried out in my need in my room, my dad would come and shame me. Like, he knows there's no monster under the bed, but I tell you, as a four-year-old, I thought there was a monster under my bed. And so he'd come in and shame me and say, there's no monster. Big boys don't cry. Big boys don't have fear. Suck it up. 
So I began to live that life. And so now every time Cedar cries out, you know what dad does? I get up and go in the room. And I don't tell him there's not a monster in the bed. I simply say, I'm with you in it. Why you think there's a monster in the bed? And so he knows he can always cry out to me because there's someone that can meet his need. So what I want to do with Cedar is model to him, hey, when you cry out, there will be someone that answers. And there's a God that's bigger than me that will come to your deepest cry out. But if I'm modeling for him that, hey, when you cry out, no one comes to answer, you think he's going to cry out to God who he cannot see? Like if he can see me and I don't come to rescue him, you think he's going to grow up thinking I can run to a God I cannot see? No. My prayer is for us, and I was praying this this morning at the coffee shop. I pray that we as believers would grow up every day with, would wake up, not just grow up, but wake up with fear. I pray when your eyes open and you get ready for the day before your feet hit the floor and you put on your pants, that you have fear. Because fear will say to you, man, I'm about to walk into a dangerous, dangerous world. You see, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, we all know this passage super well. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of His might, put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, then what does he tell us after that? Put on the whole armor of God. Well, what am I putting on the whole armor of God for if I'm not afraid? If I'm not afraid, I don't need to put on armor. Like, you're a cop. You don't go out without your bulletproof vest on because you have some level of fear when you go out into a world that someone's careless and fearless and dangerous, and they don't care about your life, so they're going to take your life. So what do you do? You have fear to put on a bulletproof vest. And that's what we got to believe to be true. If the gospel is true, then we have an adversary that what roars around like a roaring lion waiting to devour us. So we must wake up every morning with fear because if we wake up with fear, we'll cry out to God and God will then put on the armor of God for us because we're about to go into a very dangerous, dangerous world. There's no need for armor if, there's no need, if we have no, nothing to fear. Correct? You don't go in your house and put on armor unless you live in a crazy home. Then I say go to counseling. But you come home to a safe place that you can take off your armor to be naked and vulnerable. But we have fear to put that armor back on when we go back into the world. So I would plead with you, wake up every day with fear. And so what does fear give us? Remember we talked about gifts and impairments. The fear... The gift of fear is simply this. Wisdom. And fear says, I'll cry out, but i got to cry out to a God much bigger than me. It gives me the wisdom to know I don't have it. But the wisdom says there is one who does. See, in so many ways, Cedar's way smarter than I am. Because he really believes that I'm going to come to his rescue when he cries out. He's got a wisdom that says, I cry out, Daddy's coming. And I don't have to cry out long. He's going to come. 
But he, that little boy at four years old has the wisdom to cry out. I was telling Tim this morning and Nate this morning about, about orphanages. Boys and girls that grow up in an orphanage, they grow up and they cry out, but they only cry out so long because they didn't recognize nobody's coming to rescue them. There's a great article by Russell Moore that talks about when he went uh, to Russia to pick up his two little boys. I told them, if you read that article and you don't cry, uh, check in the rehab because something's wrong with your heart. But he talks about these boys and girls, they began to cry out because they had fear and they had needs. But then they realized no one's coming to rescue them, so they quit crying out. Fearless people quit crying out to a holy God. So it leads us to wisdom. Healthy fear leads us to wisdom. wisdom. The same thing for me when I see cedar or tennis in my, my eight-year-old running to the street. What, what does my fear say? I run out to protect them from the street because I have more wisdom of what's going on in the street than they do. So my wisdom, my fear that they're going to hit by a car re- leads me to be proactive to save them from themselves and from other people. We must have fear if we're going to live healthy lives. But here's the deal. When we don't live with fear and we live fearless, it always leads to rage and anxiety. Most people think rage is connected with anger. No, rage is connected to fear. Just if I came and I put a kitten or a small cat in that corner and then put a raging, hungry pit bull in the room, what do you think that cat's going to do? You think it's going to go nestle up to the dog? No, it's going to hiss. It's going to like get as big as it can. It's going to go crazy because it knows its life is in danger. It's going to rage with all of its might to protect itself. That's rage. And so when you're raging, you think you're angry, I'd simply say this. What are you most afraid about? Because you're going to keep good looking at anger. You've got to look to fear. Because if you're raging on people, hollering at people, screaming at people, your wife, your kids, what are you so afraid of? And I would simply offer you this. You are afraid that you've lost control. And so we rage to gain control. And so we get as big as possible like that cat in the corner. If I get as big as possible, then those that are weaker around me will submit to me so that I can now control them so that I don't have to have feelings of being fearful. Which leads us to rage and also anxiety. Anxiety is this. It's our attempt to get away from things around us. And it's our attempt. Anxiety is our attempt to reject our neediness. Like when I get anxious about something, I'm trying to put my fear onto something else. That's what anxiety is. I'll simply put my my fear onto someone else so that I can control them so that I don't have to live with fear. And when you live around people like that, we talked about all these will end up living in isolation. You ever been around a rageful person? You can smell them a mile away. You have been around an anxious person? Here, here's just next time you watch, who was it? Watch the coach for uh, Arizona. 
that dude is the most anxious man to ever walk a uh, sideline. Like, he's got to change shirts at halftime. That's not because it's hot in the gym. We've all been to gyms. It's because he's anxious. And now we're starting to see what he's so anxious about. He's a crook. Is this being recorded? Can you edit that part out? Like, he's like, that dude's an anxious mess. He sweats through his suit jacket. You ever seen him? The next time you see him, uh, Sean Miller's his name, watch him. Like, it's like, dude, I won't say that because there's people present. But it's like, well, it's like he poured water on his shirt. That's just straight-up anxiety. He's anxious. Which leads to isolation. Let's move to shame. Remember, we looked at the garden, and in the garden, in Genesis chapter 2, it said they were naked and had no shame. I would contend with you this morning. All feelings stem from this one feeling. If, if Genesis 2 is accurate, which I believe it is, they had no shame. And then after they ate of the tree, they had shame and guilt. And they went and hid themselves. And so I would continue with you. If you're having any of these, you're always going to get back to this one somehow, some way. See, when I get anxious or fearful, it's because I think I'm going to get exposed. That's shame. Exposed for being me. So I get anxious so no one gets near me so they don't get to know me. If they get to know me, then I would say it's probably your shame says I'm going to get abandoned, which is, comes to you in your fear. Healthy shame is this. It's the dependency feeling. Healthy shame says, I'm human and so are you. Shame is the neediness feeling. Shame, healthy shame, is humility. It's being humble. But healthy shame says this, I don't have all the answers, but maybe you have some of the answers I don't have. You see, it's your healthy shame that takes you to a doctor. Like healthy shame, when you wake up and you don't feel well, you have some level of healthy shame that I better get to somebody that got, has some answers because I don't have the answers. That's why so many people stay sick in our country because they, they don't want to recognize the shame they have and they don't want to go get the help they need. Healthy shame is our neediness feeling. I, I don't have it all together. I don't have all the answers. I'm very gifted in a very few amount of things. Like my healthy shame, just when I came out of the restroom and was walking down the hall, I saw the, um, it's so cool. I'm like, dude, that is awesome. It's the bottles with the red tops, the, the, the baptism bottles, I take it. I'm like, dude, that is so cool. And someone said, yeah, Jeremy came up with that idea. I was like, man, I'm an idiot. That's where I first went, man, I'm not that creative. And so if I will stay in that and sit in that, I'm not that creative. I just won't do anything with creativity. But my healthy shame says, man, I need to get with Jeremy who's creative because he's got something I don't have and he can help me in places I can't help myself.
It's both. So fear would say, fear, fear would say, I'm in trouble. Shame would say, I don't have the answer. But fearless people become shameless people. Does that, does that help? Yes. So fear, shame says, I have limitations. But you know what else shame does? Healthy shame? Humility? It gives you grace that says you don't have all the answers either. Like, my wife doesn't have all the answers. And I can be real gracious with her. And no, I don't have them. She doesn't have them. But you know what it does? It pushes me to the one that does have all the answers. Because I believe this with all my heart. There is someone that has all the answers. And it's not my wife and it's not you. It's God. But God often uses people to meet my needs. But there's some places that only he can meet them. And so I don't make my wife my God. I make her my wife. If you have your wife that's a God, give her the pink slip today. She's a terrible God. She's probably an amazing wife, but a really, really crappy God. So fire as your God and let her be your wife, your companion. And wives do the same with your husband. So it leads us to humility. That's the gift. The impairment is this. The impairment of shame is contempt. That says contempt. I know my penmanship's horrendous, but you'll get it. Contempt says, I hate being human. I hate being human. Anyone ever felt that way in the room? Some of y'all are lying because you're not raising your hand. All of us in the room have woken up some, to some level with some level of contempt. And contempt comes out of not believing what's true about us. What's true about every one of us in the room, if you're a Christ follower, you are Christ's workmanship. But how many of us believe that? We might know it theologically, but what you know doesn't change what you always believe. The demons believed, but it didn't change them at all. So we live with this level of contempt, this toxic shame. And then we begin to believe that we're no good, that something is wrong with us. Like healthy shame says, healthy shame says I've done something wrong. Toxic shame says I am wrong. And most of that is not the voice. When you hear the voice that you're a piece of, you fill in the blank, because we're in church, I won't say those words. But if we're honest, we all say those words internally. You might have some restraint externally. But when you're saying that to yourself, I promise this, that is not your voice that you're hearing. Though it may sound like your voice, it is somebody else's voice that has spoken that over you. Because you think my two little kids grow up right now thinking they're a piece of you fill in the blank? No. You know why? Because they've never heard that spoken over them yet. Now that might happen to them. I promise this. It's not going to happen in my home. But it could happen at school. 
it definitely, if they go to play sports, if they're not with healthy coaches, it will happen on a field with somebody to somebody. If they're playing instruments, somebody is going to speak over them things that are lies, and they will begin to believe those lies, and thus they have a home to come home to, and for me to speak the truth in them and over them. That's my responsibility. Again, I know I'm pushing them into a dark world, and in a dark world, people are going to want to harm them. They're going to want to harm them because they want to control them. They want to control them so they don't have to live with losing a flipping soccer match. It's a soccer game. You go out to a soccer field on a Saturday morning here in this city, it's the most shame-filled place in this city. I'm like, dude, it's a seven-year-old soccer game. And their people are just going bananas. Because parents don't want to live with, your kid might not be LeBron James. But they'll push them and push them and push them and shame them, shame them, shame them, shame them until they break them. And so they'll live with this place of, I must be wrong. Something is wrong with me, which then they will live with this judgment towards themselves. But then you know in turn what it does? It creates people that live with judgments towards other people. And when we live in judgment, we're outside of relationships. And when we're outside of real relationships, we live in isolation. Let's go to guilt. Guilt is the feeling that said, I've done something wrong. Not I am wrong, but I've done something wrong. Thank God for guilt. Aren't you grateful for guilt? I know it's a terrible feeling. But man, I am grateful for the gift of and the feeling of guilt. It says we have done something wrong. It leads us to believe that there's a behavior, that we've done something to someone and against God. It's called sin. The gift of guilt is this. It's repentance. Right? Healthy guilt says I've done something wrong. Healthy guilt says then somebody has to forgive me of my wrong. And so it leads me back into healthy relationships with other people. When I feel guilty and I've done something to harm you, then I've got to come and I've got to confront you and I hope you come and confront me and say, hey, what you did hurt my feelings. What you did harm me. Or I have that guilty feeling. I come to you and say, what I did was wrong and I want to repair my relationship. The only way to repair relationship is through guilt. See, if there's no guilt, then there's no need for the gospel. If there's no need for the gospel, there's no need for relationship with God, others, or ourselves. So healthy guilt always leads us to forgiveness, which will always lead us to reconciliation, which will always lead us to freedom. Because then I can know I can come to Tim, and if I've harmed him, he forgives me, we're reconciled, then I get to be free with him and know, hey, I can, I can do this again, but I know he loves me enough to continue to be in relationship with me. And, and for me, as a pastor, it's this feeling that breaks up the church more than any other feeling. Like people leave over this. 
Like if we really treated the church the way God's called us to treat a family, we're not going to leave when there's been damage in the home. We're going to stay and we're going to work it out and we're going to offer forgiveness and we're going to offer reconciliation so that people can live free in this building. But we, the pastors, must live a life of showing the congregation what it's like to leave with, with guilt. We've harmed people. If you're a pastor in this room, you've harmed people in your congregation. So it's our responsibility as pastors to lead the way to show what true repentance to the congregation looks like so they say, oh, he doesn't have it all together either. So that we live in restored relationships. You see, that's what the world around us wants to see. That's what Jesus was saying to his disciples in John chapter 13, 35. By the way that you love one another. What is love? Love is repentance. Love is reconciliation. Love is forgiveness. By the way you, the church, loves one another, the world will know something's different about you. This world wants reconciliation. They want relationship. How do we know that? Genesis chapter 1. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, everyone's been created in the image of God, which means everyone on this planet's made for relationship. And if Ecclesiastes 3.11 is true, that God's put eternity in our hearts, and it's in us already to desire relationship. Relationship comes through reconciliation. If we believe that all of us have sinned, and we've all harmed people, then our lives must be lives of forgiveness and repentance. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Jeremy, I might actually get done. It says this, 7 verse 10, you know the passage well. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas or but worldly grief produces death. Do we not want to be a people that God and we live with godly grief? Godly sorrow, godly guilt. Because godly guilt will always lead us to repentance, which leads us to salvation life. But here's what the impairment of guilt is. It's toxic shame. These two go hand in hand, by the way. If you've experienced guilt, you will have to have experienced shame. But if you've experienced shame, that does not necessarily you've experienced guilt. But if you have done something wrong to someone, I pray to God you have shame over what you've done wrong. If you don't, you're called a psychopath. And there's a small six-by-six six cell for you right up the street. See, the most, the, the most hardened criminals, they don't have shame or guilt. Jeffrey Dahmer did not live with shame or guilt. Like, he had no remorse. Like, he was a madman. He was a dangerous man. But healthy people live with shame and guilt. The impairment is this. It says, because I made the mistake, I am the mistake. 
It says, because I made the mistake, I've become unlovable and unforgivable. I, I believe that the Pharisees lived with the most guilt of any sect in Jesus' day. Because they knew internally they could not keep the law. How do we know they knew they couldn't keep the law? Because they added on to the law so they could keep the law. Right? Isn't that what they did? 60, there's 633 laws that they came up with. Like crazy. Like the law on top of the law on top of the law to, to keep the law. But they did not want to deal with their guilt of breaking the law. So they lived as very guiltless people. And guiltless people live harmfully. Were the Pharisees and the Sadducees not the most harmful people in Jesus' day? It's what took Jesus to the cross. Was their unwillingness to deal with their guilt and shame? So, undealt with guilt in our lives leave us feeling unlovable and unforgivable, toxic shame. Which says, if you live that way, you struggle believing the gospel. Because the gospel says, in spite of everything that you've done, you are lovable and you have been forgiven. But we don't live that way, do we? But we have to live with guilt. And the last one is this, gladness. Gladness is the outcome of all of their seven feelings. If you think of an iceberg, gladness is at the top. But all the other seven are what we, is underneath the water. So when people feel glad, I simply say, well, what else are you feeling? You had to have felt the other seven in order to feel gladness. The gift of gladness is joy with sadness. Anyone ever held their newborn baby and started crying? Again, if you haven't done that, go to treatment too. What's going on in us when we hold the baby and tears start rolling down our face? Like we associate tears with sadness, correct? And so for me, I'll just speak for me. I, this may not be true for you, but when I held Tennyson, my firstborn, I held Cedar, the tears came rolling down my face. And what happened to me in that moment was, oh, what a gift. And oh, crap. Like, oh, no. Like, uh-oh. I, never, I just told the guys at breakfast this morning, parenting is the, one of the things I've never, it's, it's the only thing I've never done before. Like, I've never done this before. So I had that old crap moment holding my baby, like, oh, no. Like, I, this could be real bad for her. This could real be real bad for me. This, she's not coming into a safe world. She's coming into a dangerous world. Oh, no, she's a girl. That's, that's another heap of trouble. I'll say this. Man, I don't mean to be crude, but one of my friends told me this when I had Tennyson. Should I say it? Okay, I'll say it. He told me this like two days I bring Tennyson home. I'll clean it up a little bit. He said, Todd, you know, the, you know what you have to, you know the problem between boys and girls, 
I'm like, huh? Nah, not really. He's like, with, with girls, he said, with a boy, if you have a boy, you only have to worry about one penis. He said, with a girl, you got to worry about every one of them. I was like, oh, thanks, man. Like, <laughs> then my meter just went like, beep, 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 beep. Like, oh, no. Like, you're never leaving the house. But it's those things I cry over. Like, I weep over those things. But, man, the joy, I wouldn't trade Tennyson in for the world. So we must experience the other seven. I'm going to come back to the gift as we close out. The impairment is sensuality without heart. Sensuality without heart. It's where our skin, our brains, our genitals, and our stomach get stimulated, but there's no heart involved. Like, there's really no heart involved when we're jumping out of airplanes. That's crazy. Like, the, the rush, the adrenal rush. There's no heart in adrenaline. There, there's no heart when we're obsessing with our brains more intellect. Like some of the loneliest people for me to be around are some of the smartest theologians I've ever been around. Because they talk about here, but I'm like, dude, where's here? Like they're stimulated by the brain. They can't get enough. Genitals is obviously sex. You can have all the sex in the world but have no intimacy at all. And hate yourself for it. You, you think a prostitute wants to wake up every day and have that much sex and not hate herself? No. But she's got to have that much sex to get away from who she really is. And how come you think so many prostitutes are hooked on heroin or meth or you, you name all the drugs? Because they hate themselves. They live with so much shame and contempt and guilt. But then there's that stimulation that's happening to them that awakens their brains to how God created them, and it's only lasting that long. Why do you think people love food so much? Because something happens when we eat that much food. Like if, you, if you're a food addict, it's because you have a heart problem, not because you like sugar. Like you're using food, an external thing, to give relief to the heart. That's true for every, all of these. Like if all you're doing is studying, then you're doing something externally to do something to your brain to change the chemistry that's going on in your body so that you feel good about yourself. So it's sensuality without heart. How come you think people cut themselves? Like cutters are cutting themselves so that they can still feel alive. Like something's happening in that little boy, the little girl, that when they cut themselves, the moment that they take the razor blade and cut their arm, they instantly feel alive again. Because something is happening to the body that they can actually feel, that they were unable to feel internally, so they do something external to their body to feel again. That's, what, that's true for bulimia and anorexia. It's to get back to how God created us, but we do it in so many artificial, superficial ways that are not lasting at all. 
Sex does not last all day. You know what lasts all day? Is intimacy. And so we're replacing intimacy with sex. And now we live in a culture that sex is pervasive because why? They, want, they really want intimacy. They want to get back to how God created them, but they're using all these external things. So the impairment of gladness is sensuality without heart. It's another way for us to gain control of our feelings and not to feel. If you're addicted to porn in this room, you, your brain thinks porn and masturbation, it, it's the same chemistry that's going on in your brain, and it feels like intimacy, but it's only intensity. When you cut yourself, that's not intimacy, though it feels that way. It's intensity. When you overeat, it's not intimacy, it's intensity. So you're tricking your brain. And you know what happens over time when you trick your brain? You're going to have to have more and more and more and more and more and more to achieve the same high. You talk to a drug addict. That first time they, they hit heroin, men, the high they have on their first hit, that's what they're trying to get back to. And th their body knows, hey, there's only one real high, and your body's never going to get back there, but you're telling yourself, if I could just get back to that first high, I'll be all right. And that's across the board. When we use things externally to medicate the heart. The gift, as I said, is this. And we'll turn to Matthew chapter 5. You know, Jesus, when he starts the greatest sermon that ever been preached on, on this planet, he talks about being blessed or being happy or being glad. And as you know, as students and teachers of the word, these build on top of one another. But he says this, and I'll read it and then I'll close. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hungry. Blessed are, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Seven different times he talks about being blessed or being happy. Now the writer that came up with these eight words has said this. The first one, poor in spirit. He's talking about sadness. We grieve. We're poor. We're sad. We're, we've lost something. We lost how we were created to be. The second one is we're mourn. We mourn over our sin is what he's talking about in that passage. We feel guilty. The meek is there's this, this shame that's involved. That I've got all this power, but it's got to be under control. That's what the word meek means. Hunger is this, this longing, this hurt. When you're hungry, do you not feel hunger pains. Merciful is fearful and pure in heart are those who are angry and the peacemakers are those who are lonely. And Jesus is telling us when we feel our hurt and we feel our loneliness and we feel our sadness and we feel our anger and we feel our fear and we feel our shame and we feel our guilt and we feel them in healthy ways, we will live blessed lives. 
Now I'll tell you this, when you live with guilt and shame and fear and anger and sadness and loneliness and hurt, life sucks. Like the more I deal with my heart, the more I get to a place of like, man, this, like going back to pornography would make life easy. If I'm honest, because then I don't have to feel this. Because feeling hurt really is horrible. Feeling lonely is really, really, really bad. And on and on we go. But Jesus tells us if we do these well, we'll live a blessed life. And we live a blessed life. Then what happens in verse 13? We become the salt and light of the world the world will begin to see, man, something's different about him. He's feeling his feelings, telling the truth, and giving it away to God and other people. I want that. And so in closing, I'd submit to this to you. Where we started is where we'll close. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 4. I'll give you three minutes later, Jeremy. Is this true of your life and is is it true of my life? Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. In my opinion, this is my opinion only, the way that we keep heart is simply this. Can I erase this? This is how we keep heart. This is the motto I live my life by every day. Double F, double T, double G. I want to feel my feelings. I want to tell the truth to somebody about my feelings, God and other people. Every day when I wake up and I go through my day, there's about four, five men and one woman in my life that tell I'm lonely, I'm fearful, I'm shameful. I'm hurt. I walk through these eight words with a handful of people so I can tell the truth about where I really am so I don't have to live in hiding anymore. And I give them to God and other people. And then what happens is, is what Galatians 6 tells us. Because these feelings are burdens. Galatians 6, 2 says, we are to bear what another's burdens so that we can fulfill the law of Christ. And I would ask this question. Whose burdens are you carrying? And who's carrying your burdens? You see, that verse is twofold. I'm called to carry your burdens. That's a call in my life. But I cannot carry your burdens if you are unwilling to allow me to carry them. And that comes from what James says. We are to confess to one another what's going on in our lives. Let us pray. God, I pray that you would let us be men and women that do guard our heart with all vigilance because out of it flows all of life. And I am grateful by your goodness and your kindness to me that 11 years ago you intervened in my life in such a dramatic way when I was not feeling my feelings. I was not telling the truth about where I was and what I was doing. And I definitely was not willing to be vulnerable with another person or even before you. And you, in your sovereignty, your goodness, your kindness, you disciplined me and drew me back with the gospel. 
and began to redeem my heart and continue to redeem my heart that says, I am lovable and I have been forgiven. And I'm not a piece of garbage, but I'm your workmanship created to do good works. I pray that for all of us in this room this morning. You are amazing, a mighty, kind God, a good God. You love us so much, God. That you would send your son for us to redeem us and to make us whole. And that we live lives and lives to the full. Let that be true for every one of us in this room. You have set us free from bondage. You've set us free from lies, from our parents, from other people. We are free men and women. And I pray for anyone in this room this morning that does not feel the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of the cross in their lives, that today would mark a day that they would live free. For Christ has set you free. You're free indeed. Do not be yoked to the bondage of slavery any longer. God, I pray that today would be a day that they would feel their feelings, they would tell the truth, about their feelings to you and to someone else before they even leave here today so they could live free lives. You are good, God. And we pray this all in the mighty name of our risen Savior that gives us hope and gives us freedom today. Amen.